quick PSA for our listeners who are U.S. citizens. The 2020 election season is now upon us, and it is so important that you make your voice be heard. Please go to www.vote.org to find out all voting information you might need, and be sure to vote early. Again, that website is www.vote.org. Plan your vote and enjoy the show. Computer, initialize Holosuite. Holosuite Media. Let us see what the future holds. Welcome, listeners, to another episode of What the Future Holds, your dedicated Star Trek Discovery podcast. I am host number one for this episode. I am Brandy Jekyllah. And with me, as always, are my two best guys (laughs) for for talking about Discovery. First of all, Christopher D. Littlefield. How are you today, Chris? Hello, I'm good. I just finished my season one rewatch. I'm doing good. We finished our season one rewatch yesterday, so we are just just a little bit before you. But we watch while we're eating. It's like we uh-huh. eat and watch TV. So that's actually with so much time off together made it really easy. Oh, same. And of course, this wouldn't be complete without the love of my life, my darling husband, Dave Jackala. How are you, Dave? Yeah. Greetings and salutations. I'm excited to talk about Discovery. <laughs> we made him find a lamp so that he could actually be seen on the Zoom call so yeah. that we're not just oh, talking yeah. to future guy. Yep. So It's significantly less creepy today than it was last <laughs> time. I'm no longer in witness protection. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. I still say you're future guy. How do we know there's even just one future guy? Maybe there's more than one future guy. Future hmm? guys. Right. Hmm. All right. As we threatened last episode, we are going to cover season one. And we're going to split it up into two episodes because I just don't think we can talk about 15 uh, episodes of Discovery in one hour-ish. That's just too much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we're going to divide it up in the way it originally aired because the series premiered on... It dropped on Sundays originally. And so that made doing a live show, a live reaction show, really interesting because Mondays are a weird time for that. But, yeah. hey, it yeah. works. So, yeah, so we're going to cover, in this particular episode, we are going to cover episodes one through nine of Star Trek Discovery season one, because that is what we got. And then there was like a five-week break. That was brutal. It was so brutal. And I just, I had all these theories already, and I was just waiting for them to be confirmed. Just waiting. Yeah. And they were confirmed. Although Jonathan Frakes did spoil some of them a little bit yeah we we figured (laughs) we knew we were going to the mirror universe because frakes can't keep it zipped (laughs) he can't keep his lips zipped. (laughs) he's like the tom holland of the star trek universe he totally is he can't stop the spoilers i think he was just so enthusiastic because that's that's just jonathan frakes he is just super enthusiastic about his work he's a big kid he is a big kid, and everybody loves him. I have not mm-hmm. heard anybody say one bad word about him being on set, being a director, none of it. 
We love you, Frakes. Anyway, so let's let's jump in. Let's cannonball into the pool. <laughs> let's cannonball run into <laughs> discovery. <laughs> yes, let's let's mix our metaphors and cannonball run into discovery. Yep. Season one, episodes one through nine. Okay, so we begin, of course, with the Vulcan hello. We talked about this and Battle at the Binary Stars a bit in our initial episode. I know you have some feelings, Chris, some strong feelings that you had this time around. I did. I, I've i said it before. I think that Vulcan Hello and Battle of the Binary Stars is the best series premiere of any Trek series. I love the two. I love that it takes place six months before we get into the main section of Discovery. And I was just so thrilled when, when these when these episodes dropped together and I love them. I think they're they're awesome. I have very few criticisms of them. And how do you feel about them, Dave? It's an awesome setup. Like I said in the previous episode, it's interesting to find Michael the lowest of the low at the end of that two parter and just to build her up from there. It's an interesting introduction to the Klingons. And their whole new look and the whole Takuvma and Torchbearer and the Beacon and all that stuff. It's fascinating how they build up the Klingon culture in a way we haven't quite seen before. 24 houses and all that. Yes. Mm-hmm. I how, What I feel about it, I think that it was extremely ballsy to court-martial the main character in episode two. Yeah. Who does that? I'd taken a few creative writing classes in my time, and one teacher that was a particularly good teacher, she said, the way that you write a story is you get your character up in a tree, and you throw rocks at them, and then you find a way to get them down. Well, they didn't just throw rocks at Michael. They knocked her clean out of that tree onto her butt Uh in episode two, and I've just never quite seen that I mean, no one's, I think, ever seen that in Trek, especially in a season premiere. So they were already setting themselves apart in that regard as well. Also, not starting, I mean, the show is called Star Trek Discovery, not starting on the Discovery. But of course, my theory is is that it's not just the name of the ship. It's about personal discovery and discovery of your family. And family are the people that you choose, not necessarily the people that you're born into, etc. Ad nauseum. So... (laughs) Yeah. I really liked the Crepusculans a lot. Right? Yeah, they, they I were, thought that was awesome. They they just, uh, you know, we didn't need to know more about them. Just that they were just kind of like, oh, people. Those are not our people. Oh, well, we got water. We're fine. <laughs> they were curious, but they were just like, uh, it's fine. Yeah. Crepusculans. <laughs> Interesting species that we only see the one time and may never see again. Yeah. Super cool, though. Yeah, I liked him. It made me wonder what their culture was like. Just, you know, because I wonder things like that when we see those one-off species that we know nothing about. Oh, I heard they have a very dry sense of humor. Oh, my God. You did (laughs) not just do that. You made a dad joke. Oh, God. You made a dad joke. What's happening to me? What did you do Um, to me? You're in your 40s like we are. Hi. (laughs) Welcome to your 40s. (laughs) <laughs> okay, I have one little issue with okay. with the Kelpians are not livestock. That was that was a as they were figuring out what Kelpians are and what they do and what their history looks like. The livestock thing just didn't make sense. Doesn't really make sense to me post all of 
what we know now. I agree, but at the same time, I feel like he was just trying to explain it in a way that humans would understand. Because they are hunted like game. Right. So in that regard, they are, you know, they are kept in specific locations. They, you know, go about their business. But when it's time to to harvest somebody, yeah. you know, then they just uh, like livestock. They take them away and you don't know what happens to them after that. So I can see why he said it that way. And I can headcanon it to make it fit into what we know now. Yeah, they're more like livestock than prey because they are harvested. They're ranched, essentially. They're mm -hmm. gathered, collected, and then slaughtered at a certain time rather than just hunted in the wild. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I know the Kelpian backstory is a little clunky. Yeah, it's all over the place. I will preface my comments for these episodes in that I look, I watched season one with a more critical eye this time, but it mm -hmm. absolutely does not take away from the fact that I love Discovery. And it's, I, I mean, I'm so close to saying it's my favorite Trek series, but I can also look at things critically as well without hating on it. Right. Of course. Yeah. Because you're a, you're a well-adjusted normal human being. Well, I don't know about that, but I'm glad that you think so. Of course, I don't know what that means coming from you. <laughs> hey. I love you. you know, if you're expecting perfection, yeah. you're just going to be disappointed. I wrote down yeah, a quote. Perfection is perfection is the enemy of progress. Right. Oh, indeed. Absolutely. Yeah. I agree with that wholeheartedly. I feel like just because you love something doesn't mean that you can't criticize it. And it it has to be constructive criticism. It's mm -hmm. not just hatred. And yeah. that's what certain people in the fandom can't seem to grasp is that what they are doing is just spreading hatred for the sake of spreading hatred. And I don't understand that because that's about the most untrek thing you can possibly do. Right. Yeah, it's fine to criticize something. Absolutely fine. I have my moments where I'm just like, Ew. but they're few and far between, I must say. But yeah, the Kelpian backstory, they weren't exactly sure what was happening in season one. And there was a lot of stuff that went on behind the scenes that led up to a big shakeup in the writer's room during season two. And during season two, they were actually on hiatus from filming for several weeks while they worked that stuff out. But I think that season two is all the stronger for it. So yeah, it's okay to be critical about things that you love because nothing's perfect. All right. So yeah, they weren't entirely 100% sure what they were doing with Kelpians. Let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> and we can address even more of that in season two. Oh, yeah. And yeah. more later in season one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, they, they get their stuff together in season two, I think, where the Kelpians are concerned. So, and I, yeah. I appreciate that. All right. Shall we meet Lorca? <laughs> Let's meet Lorca. Let's, Let's meet, meet Discovery. Lorca. Let's meet Discovery. Yeah. Let's meet Lorca. What's our thoughts on the ship? I love it. I right? like it. I... I like calling it the fidget spinner and the pizza cutter. It's just got that <laughs> sleek design with the spinny bit. I love it. I love the spinny bit. Well, we didn't see it in episode three yet, right? No, I thought it came with the tractor beam. Yeah. But the spinny bit? Oh, we didn't no, see we, it spin yet. No. We didn't Not see spinny yet. bit, but yeah. but, uh, but the ship itself, 
I liked it. I, I'm not one of those people that every time there's a new starship design, I come out and say, oh, well, no, I, that's not what I wanted. I don't have the capacity to artistically design a starship. Yeah. Anyone that does have that capacity, mad respect. And I, I think it's like a beautiful it. ship. It is a beautiful ship. Isn't it based on early designs for the Enterprise? Like early concept art? Some I think it was for it. phase two. Yeah, for some phase of two, maybe phase two right. stuff that never saw the light of day, and some of it might get resurrected on Infinite Trek someday. You don't know. You don't know. Right. Stay tuned. What I really that. like was the, and we saw it a few times in season one, but the perspective of being the tractored ship, mm-hmm. like we're in the tractor beam. Yeah. So we got that, and we got that in the in the premiere, and then we also got that at the beginning of Context is for Kings too, when Lorca rescued Burnham. Yeah, I'm still trying to figure out if that was a very meticulously planned rescue. Totally. I I don't know how it could be so convenient that the shuttle was... I mean, obviously, it wasn't convenient that the shuttle was there. He planned that. But to have that little storm and the little organisms wreaking havoc with the shuttle, I mean... Was that all planned then? <laughs> I think so. I think he planned the little organisms too. I, I bet they were something he kept in his menagerie and he just <laughs> you know what? That beamed works. them out there at the right time. That works. You know, works. pilot be damned that she died, you know? Well, we don't know that she died. She was in an environmental <laughs> suit, but... She yeah. spun out somewhere. Spun out. She's still floating in space somewhere, ran out of oxygen, <laughs> and now she is dead. We'll never know for sure. Yeah. Ugh. So, yeah, why didn't they try to rescue her? That's odd. I mean, the minute that they were in trouble and the pilot went out, you would think that that's about the time Discovery ought to show up. (laughs) Not after someone's been thrown off and probably dead. What if that had been Michael? Of course, it wouldn't have been Michael. She's a prisoner. But, you know. It's really interesting to watch the... Rewatched the season and I watched it, you know, five or six times when it originally aired. And then I think I did a rewatch before season two started. But knowing all that we know now, going back and watching it is really cool. Mm-hmm. Thinking, you know, realizing that, you know, Lorca knew who he, you know, we knowing who Lorca is all along and also that the actor knew as well. It's it's really fascinating to watch all of that. Watching it after having seen season two as well gives it a whole different layer of context Mm -hmm. as well. Because, again, knowing future events that have come from this first season and how things, certain things play out in season two, it's just like, oh, gosh, it all ties together. But it just, it casts different light on season one. And I have different feelings about different things. Yeah. I was way more emotional during this rewatch than I have ever been. I was too. There were cry points. A lot of cry points. It felt a lot deeper to me this time. Mm -hmm. And I also, without all the hubbub of it being a brand new series and people throwing all their opinions out there, I just thought, you know, the writers and the the producers did an amazing job of having these actors know who their characters were as much as they could at the beginning of a series and then just the depth that they brought for something brand spanking new is incredible to me. And all of the emotional subtext. And I just think it's I think it's that it's really, really strong. I don't tend to get that emotional. I did have some moments that I smiled or 
felt sad. And Ash Tyler's arc in this in particular is really tough because you're dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder. You're dealing with somebody who believes he's a victim of sexual assault and also the struggles of personal identity, of you know, having this human personality overlaid on the Klingon personality and his struggles between the two, and that he relied so much on Burnham to be his tether, even uses that phrase, and then even that fails him to the point where he attempts to kill her. I found that arc particularly strong this time around, because the first time it was just guessing, okay, who is Ash Tyler? Is he a Klingon spy? What is his story? And then once you know what that is, you're able to pay closer attention to it and to see how he as an actor plays out that role, that struggle. Yeah, mad props to Shazad Latif for playing that both roles so yep. convincingly and so differently. Yeah, a.k.a. Clem Fandango. <laughs> uh, hello, this is Clem Fandango. Can you hear me? <laughs> we'll have to send you uh, clips of that show so that you'll understand, Chris. <laughs> okay, yeah, I don't get it. <laughs> we, we, we didn't either. It's a British thing. I have two questions about Context is for Kings, though. Right. Sure. So they start when at the end of the episode, when Lorca takes Burnham to engineering, the transporter effect happens slightly before he says energize. So I felt like the timing wasn't great there in editing, in post. <laughs> or the so transporter fast. chief was anticipating him. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and why is there an obelisk on Andoria? Mm, I don't know. I, I, I want to know. I feel like there was a reason maybe why they put the obelisk from the TOS episode. And I'm just like, I want to know why it was there. Unless it was just, maybe we'll do something with this later. But then they didn't. Or maybe Andoria was seeded, was one of the planets that was seeded by the... Uh, preservers. Preservers, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't I don't know, because we've been to Andoria exactly once in all of Star Trek, and that was in Enterprise, so... Oh, yeah. Cold planet. Very cold. Well, it has warmer bits, but it's mostly <laughs> icy. It has warmer bits. <laughs> it, like, it's like Finland. Finar. Right. <laughs> <laughs> warmer bits yep yeah. <laughs> might have a show title <laughs> it has warmer bits <laughs> i'll write that down as a possibility <laughs> because these things can fly by you pretty quickly <laughs> writing down titles brought to you by <laughs> oh so you wanted to talk about Lorca? now that we know who and what he is and have met jason isaacs <laughs> Basically, when we met Jason Isaacs and we talked to him and Dave explained it was his favorite captain and he said, yeah, well, Lorca got shit done. And so I'm watching Lorca with that in mind. And he does get shit done. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't want any small talk. He doesn't want any no. explanation. He wants you to do it. Mm -hmm. Well, he doesn't leave any opportunity for anyone to come in. And I mean, he's built his armor up around him so strategically mm -hmm. that we were get we were having a hard time as an audience on the initial watch deciding if he really was who we thought he could possibly be or if he was just a really strong hard-ass wartime captain 
Well, and that's the beauty of him being the captain of the Discovery at this time, is that we can chalk up all of these decisions up to a point as mm -hmm. to him being a wartime captain and him being the captain of this particular ship in which they're developing what they think is going to be a crucial weapon to help them win the fight against the Klingons. And the spore drive is a weapon of sorts. It's just not the kind of weapon that I think anyone anticipated. Mm-hmm. So I will say this, I did call Ash Tyler as a Klingon. Yeah, you did. Definitely from Choose Your Pain. <laughs> from Choose Your Pain really? on, I'm like, that, that's Voke. Because suddenly Voke is gone, but Lorel's still around. That's Voke. <laughs> and I did say that, actually, on the live show. And everybody was just kind of poo-pooing me. <laughs> no, I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> and that's fine. So, yeah, Lorca. Lorca is... He's a disappointed father, is what yeah, he is. Oh, that is so good. He runs the ship like a disappointed father, and everybody is there to try to impress him. Mm. And it takes a lot to impress him. Like an abusive stepdad. Yeah, he's <laughs> very much that. And he's also, if you think of what happened to the Baran, he's a survivor. There's kind of a mystery. Did he desert his crew? Or is he playing out survivor's guilt? So there's all these excuses for his poor behavior other than being from the mirror universe of why he's so embittered and abrasive. I will interject something that's totally non-canon, but it's fun anyway. I've been playing Star Trek Online again, and I chose to go with the Discovery timeline. I won't explain how I got to be captain of a ship in one mission, because it's not like a 2009 thing, guys. It's not like Star Trek 2009. This all happens after the battle at the Binary Stars, but before the events of Discovery Season 1. So there's this this time where you're, we're fighting the Klingons everywhere we go. Oh, within those six months. Mm -hmm. okay. And I get to, as a, as a player, as a character, I get to go to Pryor's world where Lorca in the Mirror Universe said that he was when he ended up in the Prime Universe. I got to fight Klingons while trying to get to the Baran and save them because their shields were failing. And there was an ion storm going on. So right. I'm just like, oh, my God, this is so amazing, you guys. And, of course, they make it impossible for me to get to the Baran in time, which right. is interesting because that means that I met Prime Lorca. But then the Lorca that we rescued was not Prime Lorca. Oh. And that's crazy. <laughs> Was there an ion storm and a transporter malfunction? Well, it was a transporter malfunction on Mirror Lorca's side. Right. And the ion storm is what switched their places. Oh, okay. So. Yeah. There's, yeah, anyway. That I old just, thing. That was mm -hmm. just, um, that was just super cool that they did that. Because I'm like, I'm going to Pryor's world. Why does that sound familiar? <gasps> oh. And it didn't really click until we were watching discovery season one again and i realized mm -hmm. oh that's where they switched places and when they switched places mirror Lorca is the one who blew up the ship right it was nice to play around a little bit on the baran for a minute so <laughs> yeah that's just uh, an aside that means nothing in canon so yeah but it's cool i mean it works it does work. I And I was really impressed at the way that they worked that in. I also got to have Tilly as my chief engineer for a little while because we were on a training cruise when everything went to hell. So, yeah. <laughs> so I have a quick question. Two questions. 
And this is, where's the chief engineer when they use the tardigrade? And where's the chief medical officer when Landry dies? Where are the department heads in these major events? Well, the chief engineer has nothing to do with the spore drive because it is based on technology that the chief engineer has no knowledge of. And also Stamets is extremely secretive. Like he has that locked room where all the spores are. And he's not sharing this information with anyone. It's all classified. I mean, is there like I just I have I have I don't know. I don't buy that. (laughs) I think it was like a mistake. No, <laughs> in the I writing, I don't think so because for so long we've always focused on the chief medical officer and the chief engineer, where there are so many other people on that ship doing the work. That why should we only focus on those? But that heads is the, of the point of discovery. That's the secret weapon. The chief engineer of the ship would be involved, and if if the secure chief of security Landry dies from the tardigrade. The chief medical officer would be there, not Culber. I mean, Culber would be there, but he wouldn't be handling it all, right? Like the chief medical officer would be. Yeah, I think that's odd that Culber is not the chief medical officer. It seems like that was an odd choice. I do like the fact that we that we don't focus on the chief officers or the heads of the departments, but they would. I feel like they would have a much more active role. Well, I guess it just depends on who's on duty at the time. Because the chief medical officer isn't on duty 24 hours a day. Chief engineer is not on duty 24 hours a day. That's why they have other people who work in their departments. But they have major decision moments that involve everything that's going on on the ship. I think they'd be involved. That's all I'm saying. I can understand with engineering because the Discovery is an experimental vessel. Mm -hmm. And Stamets is in charge of that whole thing before they were taken over for the war effort. It's his baby. And so he really, even though he's more of a like a biophysicist weird thing, that he kind of fits in the position where the chief engineer usually would be because it's specifically about the spore driving, getting that to function, that he fills in that role. You could also make the argument that because Lorca is who he is and he's been giving, he's been given full jurisdiction to do whatever he wants outside of even Starfleet regulations, that he purposefully separated the chief officers from everything else that was going on. Like, it doesn't make sense to me that Michael would be so involved without the chiefs knowing because she's a mutineer. You know, I I suppose Lorca could be the one that is keeping everyone separate, too, even though it's not shown. Yeah. Well, I mean, have we even seen the warp core of Discovery at this point? No, because the spore drive is a completely separate entity. Yeah, I don't mm-hmm. recall seeing an engineer, really, <laughs> oh, other we, than people we, just doing little small repairs or anything. Yeah, we've we've seen some engineers. We've seen engineers, yeah. Jet Reno's an engineer. Yeah, but that she comes in later. And George Lebezos yeah. is the wounded is a wounded engineer, the one from Magic to Make the Sanest Man Go Mad that they that yep. Tyler toasts to. So the the way that. I, I understood it was that the spore drive was classified and only a select few people who were working on the project on the ship were read in. Well, yeah, it is section 31. You know, we got the black badge in episode three, so it is under technically black ops. That's for me is the explanation as to why the chief engineer isn't involved because they were not read in because Stamets is extremely possessive. (laughs) And I understand that, too, because 
it's easy to not know anything and be able to deny it. So it's, it's a lot easier when fewer people know things. So mm-hmm. it, that's how you keep a secret is have as few people as possible know it. And you have a gaslighter captain who would do things like that on purpose. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. Lorca would do that. Mm-hmm. I so. mean, he did that to everybody. So, but yeah, Why, I don't, you know? I don't get the whole never seeing the medical chief medical officer. Cause we see another couple of doctors in season one, a man and a blonde woman. And then we, and then Dr. Uh, Dr. Pollard, we see Pollard, yeah. Later in season one, finally get a name. I like the blonde one. She seems cool and tough. They're, they all are cool and tough. They're Starfleet <laughs> medical, bitch. There's a really great, great quote from. So at the end of Butcher's Butcher's Knife Cares Not for the Lamb's Cry is when we get the Giorgio goodbye to Michael. The last which, will and testament, yeah. Yeah, and that just that was a tearful moment for me. Yep, me too. This time, especially. And I love I love when she says the best way to know yourself is to know others. That really impacted me this this viewing. And that that's what started making me think, you know, we've talked about like being empathic and all of that before. But this is it's I think it's at this moment in the series when for me, this show is so much about empathy and putting yourself in other people's experiences and really understanding them and where they come from. Like, I just feel like this is a huge through line in Star Trek Discovery itself, and it starts from the beginning. Yes. Yeah, you definitely get that with Tilly, because she is, like, the heart of that whole storyline, as she's the one that reaches out to Michael Burnham. She's Mm -hmm. the one that sits with Ash Tyler when he goes back to the cafeteria after having, you know, the Vogue personality subdued. I think even Stamet says to her, I think this is in season two and we're not really supposed to be talking about season two, but that everything she does, she does from the position of love. Right. And that's what would make her an excellent captain. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Burnham says it about Saru in season two also. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we get that with Spock also. I will say I love to see how Michael's and Saru's relationship grows in season one mm-hmm. because they do not like each other in that season premiere oh yeah she knocks him out of the way to work on his station oh that basically was so shoves cool. him aside but mm-hmm. it felt like it was more like it, it was a more competitive type of situation but then once she gets Giorgio killed it turned serious and like mm-hmm. saru was not gonna let that go for a really long time he was you know, he was kind of an asshole to her. I'm not saying it wasn't deserved. It was deserved. And I understand his anger because, and he tells her that you, I was so jealous of you. You got to stay by her side and soak up everything that she had to teach. And it was Mm -hmm. assumed that you would get your own command and move on. And I would step into that role. And he was upset that he never got the chance to learn from her. The interesting thing, though, is that Michael learned from her, and now he can have a, a better relationship with Michael because she was with Giorgio, and she knew all of these things and incorporates all of these things. So I mm. think that Saru does get a little bit of that because, honestly, now he's ahead of her. Now he's a full commander and a first officer on Discovery. He's a very good first officer, but he mm-hmm. has... He has to work through his anger 
And I think that when Michael gives him Giorgio's telescope, that that goes a long way to mending that very broken pathway between the two of them. It ebbs and flows, right? Their relationship, mm-hmm. there are moments where he's like, you know, I, you are a predator. And then there's moments, it just goes back and forth because then he becomes a total jerk when it comes to Michael and Culber when it comes to using the tardigrade, even though it's killing the tardigrade. Mm-hmm. You know, and he's like so hellbent on, we have to do this. I don't care if this creature's sentient. We have no idea. It just, there's, there, you know, it's, it goes up and down a lot. Well, once Saru gets the captain's chair, he goes to the computer and asks for all the best captains and what their traits are and tries to emulate them rather than be his own captain. So really, Saru's mm. not being himself. He's trying to be someone else. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. And I think that's really the, the theme, the overarching theme of season one as a whole is people trying to be something other than what they are and not being true to themselves. And I think you see that through a lot of characters, even Lorca. Lorca is being something mm-hmm. he's not. He's having yeah. to deal with Starfleet rules. And really all that he is doing is manipulating people and making them think it's their idea in order to get back to his own timeline. And he does it expertly. He is so good at making people think that they are doing this of their own free will. It's uncanny. Yeah. I mean, it's he's a he's a sociopath, right? Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. And a, and a narcissist, like Definitely. He's he's a classic narcissist and, you know, with the whole thing with Cornwell and she's also a very empathic person. I love Cornwell. Oh, yes. That that relationship between the two of them, it's like it's the empath and the narcissist. Classic, you know, and Mm -hmm. he's just so devious and so smart. Everything is so planned. He knows exactly what he's doing. And there are people like that. She even says to him that he passed his psyche vow because he knew what answers they wanted. He didn't Mm -hmm. answer honestly. He answered what he knew they wanted to hear. And that's a very sociopathic thing to do. That is very sociopathic. And when she says she's going to bench him, basically, and he becomes all of a sudden this, this, he's freaking out. And, oh, don't do that. I'll do this. I'll do that. You're absolutely right. It's all calculated. Every bit of it is calculated. Say whatever they do. Say whatever they need to do to get what they want. Mm -hmm. And then he arranges for her to meet with the Klingons to kind of sue for peace, knowing that they'll take her prisoner hoping probably hoping that they're going to kill her yeah exactly yes indeed i think that was exactly what he hoped and you remember his face when he found out she was alive yep oh there are so many little subtleties especially especially with michael and lorca in season one that i'm just little teeny tiny things there are little moments when oh my gosh they're so good there are little moments when michael has a little huh kind of moment when lorca says or does something that's a little off, but it's so subtle. It's almost like Michael herself doesn't even realize that she has a little blip in in who, who he is and what he's doing. It's so great. And there's little things like the way he'll touch her, like touch mm-hmm. her leg. Oh, yeah. Or like when she and Ash and was it Landry went off on an away mission and he's like, bring her back in one piece. And of course, Tyler's thinking it's about the shuttle that they're taking, but he's talking about uh, Michael Burnham, Mm -hmm. that she's that important to him. Mm -hmm. Or don't come back at all. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Now that we know the relationship he had with Mirror Michael, it's just kind of, it's so gross. (laughs) 
it's just it's creepy. creepy. It's so gross. And when he held her hand for, I mean, this is in the second half, but when he puts his hand on her hand for a really, really long time, I'm like, Mm -hmm. oh my God, gross. (laughs) Oh, and when he finally realizes that Michael has feelings for a Tyler, there's a little switch that goes off in him. Mm -hmm. And you can see the moment. It's when Tyler... Oh, this is, we're back. I'm in the wrong. Sorry, I'm in part two of season one. I'm jumping ahead. <laughs> Later. It's so easy to Later. do. Yeah. Later. We'll we'll take care of that in a bit. <laughs> I like when Lorca tells Laurel when she's torturing him, "We all got something, honey." Mm-hmm. That's that interplay between the two of them is so cool. And he uh, offhandedly confirms that Vulcan and Vulcan. He offhandedly confirms that Klingon women have two vaginas. <laughs> I did not notice that. You had to point that out to me. <laughs> Subtitles help. <laughs> and that Subtitles works for Klingon help. men. Yeah. Because uh, Klingon men have two penises. That is something we know. And mm-hmm. and I've been ruminating for months, if not years, <laughs> of whether that means that Klingon females have two vaginas. I would think so. But how does that work? I still want to know, like, physically how that is arranged. Yeah. It's it's from a practical standpoint. I'm not trying to be gross <laughs> here and think about Klingons having sex. I'm just trying to work it out in my brain how actually yeah. mechanically that works. Yeah, because it makes childbirth weird. Because wouldn't that make oh. the vaginal, like, birth canal too narrow if you have two of them? I don't understand. And what oh the guys is it is it an over under situation or is it a side by side situation? Yeah, exactly. I think it's over these under. The, these are the questions that I have. Yeah. These are the questions that I have. And oh. want someone to spell it out for me in canon <laughs> with diagrams, please. I would really like to understand how this can physically happen. Mm-hmm. Fun for gay Klingons though. <laughs> gay male Klingons. And, and and lesbian Klingons, you know. This is true. There's more for everybody. More for everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There's another episode title. There's more for everybody. I want to know more about Klingon sexuality. Yes. (laughs) I I would imagine that they have the same things available to them. Like there's gender specific, like heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual, pansexual. I would think that all of those things probably exist in any race that has, you know, that identifies as different genders. I mean, the Andorians, mm. they have four people in their family units. Mm, right. You know, males and females. Let's not even get started on, on the. Yeah, exactly. Denobulance. Because <laughs> I still don't understand exactly how all of that works. But anyway. <laughs> Back back to the thing. Okay, so let's talk about Ash Tyler and his first oh, okay. very convenient appearance. <laughs> yes. It's like, oh, he just happens to be in the same prison cell as Lorca. How convenient. Yeah, and he wasn't at first. He wasn't That's at first, the yeah. They, the other they guy ki- was. They kill a guy. Mm-hmm. Again, I think all very well orchestrated, but this time by Laurel. She yep. was very careful about how she did things obviously wanted to get someone from discovery needed to get someone from discovery so she got Lorca and puts her little ash tyler in after that other guy dies mm-hmm. and he's just he's just perfect he's too perfect yeah well you could see Lorca be suspicious especially when ash tyler says he's been there for what six months or something like that mm-hmm. Seven he's like months. okay how did you survive here that long and of course he has an excuse because lorel likes him yeah, right. and so he's keeping him around for 
for her own for sex it's for sex let's be honest it's for sex even though he doesn't have the right number of organs anymore oh vulcan males everywhere going oh no no (laughs) took away half of my yeah Yeah. the grinder oh god no (laughs) (laughs) so what happened to his fingertips they had to grind them down to make them shorter Mm -hmm. seriously though you don't but i think that even like Lorca obviously saw that Ash was a strong-willed person and could he could benefit from him too. Yes. Otherwise, he would have killed him when he was slowing him down when they were trying to escape. He would have mm-hmm. just killed Tyler, but he didn't. He wanted Tyler mm-hmm. for this fight. And uh, I don't know if Lorel knew enough about Lorca to know how to appeal to him. Mm-hmm. But she's very smart, and she is also part of House Mokai, which they are spies and deceivers and liars <laughs> yep. and undercover Weavers of agents. lies. Yeah. Right. So I would bet money that she had meticulously planned down every aspect of this. And she knew something was up with Lorca, right? Like, she knew... Mm-hmm. He wasn't quite what he seemed. Obviously, yes. I don't think she knew he was from another universe, but oh, no. she knew he was a little off and a little different yes, than, your, than your standard Starfleet captain. She definitely did know that. And that was mm-hmm. evident in that little torture scene. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, do we have to talk about Harry Mud? Let's talk about Harry Mud for a minute. Um, <laughs> you don't like Harry Mud? I have never liked Harry Mud, but if there has to be a Harry Mud, I am glad that it's Rain Wilson's Harry Mud. Ah, uh, I think he's fantastic. I can't stand him. I am so annoyed by him. Well, I mean, Rain Wilson's Harry Mud. Yeah, no, I, I mean, just Harry Mud in general is very annoying. He, he is another uh. one of those people that thinks he knows everything. And I like that better than the bumbling idiot who was in the original series. Definitely, yeah. Now, this Harry Mudd, I could absolutely believe created all those androids. I can Mm -hmm. absolutely believe that. So, and his motivations are better. And I like what he says about how, you know, you guys are up there in the stars. You never think about the people on the surface. Right. You know, you're you're off there. Yeah, he brings up some really good points about, you know, colonialism and and stuff like that. Yeah, those are some valid points. Mm-hmm. The thing is that colonialization and <laughs> the Federation's rules and regulations and stuff hurt him because he's a criminal. Yes, <laughs> true. And so his criticism is coming from that point of view. He's not really looking out for the little guy. He's looking out for himself. Yes, but there have been examples before in Star Trek of, you know, people getting dumped on a planet and then nobody ever goes back to check in and <coughs> gone. So, <laughs> yeah, people get angry at, at that sort of treatment. I'm fine with having Harry Mud. I honestly just I I suffer through it. I, Rain Wilson is perfect. His performance is perfect, mm-hmm. and it's I never would have thought that was in him because the things that I've seen Rain Wilson do, I'm just like, oh, wow, (laughs) this, he just really dug into it. And he just embodied that character so brilliantly that I Mm -hmm. just, I can't now see anyone else ever doing it. Uh, And we'll get a fun time loop episode out of it. We do get a fun time loop episode out of it, which some people love and some people hate. I love it. 
I love it too. I don't generally like time loop episodes, but this one was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> if not only because of there was finally that one person that actually knew what was happening. And that was Stamets. And a good excuse for it too, you know, being from the mycelial network and having seen other timelines and so kind of existing out of time himself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed it a lot, this rewatch, Magic to Make the Sanus. I know we skipped over Lethe a little bit, but we'll go back. I thought that if you think about it, really that episode just created a ton of multiple realities, mm-hmm. right? So like so many. a ton of multiple realities in which Discovery exploded. Mm-hmm. Discovery was destroyed, but I thought it was a really, really good episode. I think it's one of the one of the best reset button time loop type of episodes that we have in Star Trek. Absolutely agree. Because you think about it too, every single time Stamets is the only one that knows what's going on, and he has to s- somehow coordinate all of that in whatever amount of time it takes them mm-hmm. when they finally when they finally flip the switch off and trick Mud. Like that's. That's some crazy stuff. It is. And you have to wonder exactly how many times he went through that loop because it feels like thousands. And the one in which Michael Burnham basically commits suicide to restart the cycle again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just so they could get that one extra attempt to succeed. And I really do love how they use non-critical systems to (laughs) trip mud up and (laughs) rewire things so that... He can't take complete control of the ship like he thought he did. I think it's a really well-written episode. It is. It is very well-written. And I like how there are little differences in each loop because sometimes people react to something in a slightly different way. A that's the beauty effect. Exactly. Yeah. That's the mm-hmm. beauty of humanity. We never know exactly what we're going to say at any given moment. Mm-hmm. And every word coming out of my mouth creates a new reality somewhere. And there's a really great quote that kind of loops back to Brandy, what you were saying about, you know, not pretending to be someone else. Then Stamet says, never hide who you are. That's the only way relationships work. Mm -hmm. And I love that. Like, this is another little breadcrumb through this through the season that not only explains what, you know, the show is all about, but also, you know, people are hiding who they are. They're not (laughs) they're insecure with who they are, Tilly. And, you know, that's the only way relationships work is 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 being your authentic self. I think one of the best examples of that is the non-main characters, like the rest of the bridge crew. We kind of know their names, we kind of know their positions, but we don't know really anything else about them, like Detmer and Owojikin. We don't know much about them until around the second series, because Mm -hmm. Lorca is suppressing them down. They're not important enough to him. They're just filling in a role. He's not relying on them for anything outside of their basic role. And it's interesting to see them develop and discover themselves later on when they're allowed to be Starfleet. He doesn't care about them because anyone could do what they do, so he thinks. He's wrong, but because there there is no better pilot on that ship than Detmer. Oh, yeah. Oh, she's she is badass. such a badass. I love Detmer. And Woshikun's no slouch either, so she's very mm-hmm. good at ops. Anyway, yeah. Uh, let's, let's go back to Lethe because... It's a really important episode, like really important episode. And this one makes me cry so hard, so hard, (laughs) especially the first time that I saw it, because I understood the gravity of what Sarek had done immediately without him having explained it. When, you know, we find out that 
they were only going to take either Spock or Michael. They weren't going to take two not full Vulcans. And I just went, oh my God, oh my God. And then Spock doesn't want to be, oh, and then he goes off and joins Starfleet and oh, the guilt, the guilt that Sarek would feel just hurt me. It hurt me so much because I know that he thought he was making the right decision. And then to have his son say, nah, don't want to do that. Going to do my own thing. This is a very personal episode for me, Mm -hmm. especially after this most recent rewatch, because it just it reminded so many things reminded me of my dad and my relationship with my dad. Michael Burnup, Sinequa Martin-Green got a lot of criticism in season one that I think was was unwarranted. Agree. And and the character too of Burnham Agree. that I think was that I think was sexist and racist. Mm-hmm. And oh, yeah. having all of that noise when watching this the first time was really distracting for me. And it really bothered me a lot. So it it, it made it hard sometimes to really just observe the story that was being told and what they were saying, what the writers were saying. And now that the, those people, I'm not, you know, listening to them as much anymore or hearing them as much anymore. And I'm really able to watch the, uh, I, I really fell in love with Michael in this episode. Just her discovery of her father's disappointment in her and the feelings that he has about her are really all about him. That was like mind blowing for me this time mm. through. Because it, I mean, it's it's very relatable for me personally. This is a this is a special episode for me, and I love how they tell the story going back further each time she goes into Sarek's mind. I didn't pay attention to that as much the first several times I watched it. It was it was great how they did that to to advance the story. They went further back in time in that experience, and that is the episode where Lorca says to Tyler, "You bring her back in one piece," and he's like, "I'll make sure mm-hmm. nothing happens in the show." He's like, "Once I was talking about Michael." Is this also our introduction to the logic extremists? Yes. Well, it's not our mm-hmm. introduction to the logic extremists overall, but it is our introduction yeah. to them in Discovery. And it's such a weird oxymoron to be a logic extremist. It's, being extreme in itself is illogical. So it's Agree. like, just, it's pretty funny in mm-hmm. that they're very much about, you know, the Klingons keeping things Klingon, the Vulcans keeping things right. Vulcan. It's the same mentality. Mm-hmm. It is it's just xenophobic nativism. Yeah, yeah. And you know what? Vulcans are really racist. You they guys are so racist. Yeah, Enterprise. Like, this episode does that oh a lot. Oh my god. Yeah, they're racist. Mm. Yeah, not all of them, but they're largely the whole thing with Sarek and his kids. It's like you, you, y'all are racist. Well, I think with <laughs> with a lot of racists, racist. it comes through a low self esteem in its own right, mm. because we know the Vulcans used to be very violent people. And they attacked each other all the time and it, to the point where they nearly killed themselves off until they discovered logic where they could suppress those emotions. And so they know there's this dark underbelly to their society that they're just tapping down. And so mm-hmm. if you run across somebody like the human race where they're emotional and they're getting by with it, how that would reflect on themselves that they had to find meditation and logic in order to shut that down. But these lowly humans that just barely discovered warp drive can just handle it (laughs) so of course they're gonna be a little resentful of that and i think that is reflected in being a speciesist or racist it's jealousy yeah jealousy so you think that they feel threatened 
because humans can potentially expose who they really are or something? I don't think it has anything to do with that. I think that it is a way of believing that has been passed down from generation to generation ever since the Vulcans had first contact with humans. Mm. And I think that most Vulcans don't really actually feel that way about humans, but humans are an example of being very violent, nearly destroying themselves, but then they banded together and tried to rebuild their civilization. And yes, there were still people who were doing it just for the money, <coughs> Zephram Cochran, but it ended up bringing about good things, even though their motivations may not have been the purest. The result brought an age of enlightenment that they wouldn't have had otherwise, brought them to the space age, you know, not mm. the space age that we think of, but literally the ability to travel to another planet within your own lifetime. Yeah, interstellar <laughs> in the, travel. Yeah, in the space of, you know, maybe a few hours or a few days rather than yeah. your entire life to get to that place. So, and I think the Vulcans, when they started helping humans develop that technology, they were hindering them because I think they didn't want them to make the same mistakes that they had. But the problem is, is that you have to let people make their mistakes. That's how they learn. Mm -hmm. That's another theme in this whole series is learning from mm. your mistakes because nobody's perfect. Yeah. And well, we and, talked about that with uh, Georgia, right? Yeah. Is that she'll have Burnham learn by her mistakes. And that's a very Chinese way of teaching, a very Taoist way of teaching is you allow your student to learn for themselves. You don't just dump information as we do, you know, in Western society where we just fill their heads with facts and data and dates and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. It it lacks context. You just have somebody learn yeah. by doing. There is no greater teacher than life experience. Right. And mistakes are the greatest teacher of all because those who don't learn from their mistakes are going to keep making those mistakes over and over again. And most of us do learn. Mm -hmm. Some of us don't. Those are sociopaths and psychopaths <laughs> and narcissists, etc. Recidivists. <laughs> okay, we are running out of time. And I really want to talk about Seaweed Pack and Parabellum. Because <laughs> this is where we get to see what Saru could be like without his fear reaction. Right. And it goes a bit wrong and a bit yeah. scary. It echoes forward into what we learn about the Kelpians in season two, that they actually were the predators and nearly killed off the Ba'ul. And so right. you can see how that aggression is in him, but because mm. he doesn't know what to do with it and is desperate to keep that, that peace, that lack of fear, things turn ugly. And I feel right. so I had not thought him. about it that way. I felt I feel so bad for him in this episode. It just he breaks my heart so much because, you know, I know that this is not the real Saru. And he realizes that, you know, of course, once he's out of the influence of the Pavans and has that fear reaction back, that constant state of fear that he's in and how horrible he feels. 
Oh my gosh, this is blowing my mind what you're saying right now, because I was so focused on, you know, they that they have fast speed because Burnham explains that they're pursued by apex predators. So I'm so fixated on, well, that doesn't make sense compared to how we know the Ba'ul harvest them. But perhaps that's what they thought. I don't know. Well, there's other things too, like biologically speaking, Saru has forward-facing eyes, stereoscopic eyes. They're not to the side like most prey, so they can see their flanks to see if they're being approached. Mm. So he has a predator's eyes that are focused forward. Right. But, but Brandy, you're blowing my mind because of the fact at the end that he said, no, that really was me. That really was who I am. And to me, I'm like, well, that doesn't make sense because blah, 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 blah. But now it does make sense if knowing what we know in season two, that it, that was actually him. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Thanks. Thanks for that. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. It's it's was it was really something because I actually had to rewatch the episode earlier this year to be on another podcast that was going through season one of Discovery. I had these revelations as I was watching this because I hadn't watched this episode since I'd watched season two of Discovery. And it really hit me hard knowing what I knew from the future, how that influenced this episode and kind of was just like, okay, Saru, you're being a dick. Why are you being such a dick? And then I'm just like, oh my God, this poor man, this poor man. (laughs) That's me through this entire episode. Is just my heart breaking for Saru and what he goes through and what he finds out about himself is just so hard. Yeah. And it, it changes his relationship with Michael, which is changing throughout the entire season. But, you mm-hmm. know, she, it's getting to the point where he is feeling more comfortable with her. So yeah. I just wanted to touch on that because I just felt I, like this was a it. pivotal episode for Saru. Yeah. It's also a beautiful episode. Oh, I mean, yes. it's filled with with all the different hues of my favorite color, turquoises and, you know, aquamarines and stuff. And I just think it's gorgeous. Very mm-hmm. pastel planet. And I also realized in this episode that this is when, this is the episode where I realized that we have to be grateful for Lorca. We have to be thankful for him that he did all the terrible things that he did and that he's going to do because he's the one who brought us michael if it weren't for him we wouldn't have michael right she'd still be in prison this is true he does do one good thing (laughs) (laughs) that's michael all right we're almost at the end here oh my god let's talk about into the forest i go this is a very pivotal episode as well for many reasons they started dropping a lot more clues Mm -hmm. about Lorca. yeah so specific about those 133 jumps Mm-hmm. that it had to be it's like why that many why really mm-hmm. do we need that many well it was it was determined that they would need that to fully map the cloak but right. the whole premise of it is interesting because yes it's technology that will help the fleet detect klingon ships and at the same time Lorca is getting the information that he needs to get back to his own universe. And so I just thought again he accidentally does something good, but then he manipulates Stamets into doing that one last jump and changes the coordinates. Let's be honest, did we didn't we all know we were in the mirror universe at the end of that episode? Pretty sure, yeah. 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 It's it's just interesting. He he does accidentally do good things in the pursuit of his machinations to get back to his universe and depose the emperor. 
Well, it's like the wolf in sheep's clothing. He has to pretend to be the sheep to get what he wants right. done. And so, yes. yeah, he'll do what's necessary for Starfleet to achieve his own goals. And I think that it's those things that ended up changing him just a little bit, little by little by little, put little cracks in, in who he was, which ended up making him fail in the end. Mm-hmm. That also gave everybody else the strength to defeat him. Yep. You know? Oh, we'll we'll talk about that in the next episode when yeah. we get to <laughs> I really liked in this episode... Yeah, I really liked in this episode that we got the perspective of jumping mm-hmm. from on the inside. Yes. Right. That was really cool. Mm-hmm. I really loved that. And then I didn't remember Cole put on the Delta. I, I, I didn't pay. Well, I guess I remembered it, but it didn't have as much of an impact on me that he put on Giorgio's Delta while he was fighting Burnham. Mm-hmm. He purposely did that just to rile her, just to make her mm-hmm. unsteady. And boy, do I love watching a little woman fight a big Klingon and holding her <laughs> own. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good fight. Tiny but fierce. Don't you Mm -hmm. underestimate Michael Burnham. Did y'all hear the uh, Cadet Decker call? Yes. Yes, yes, we did. I'm like, is that Will Decker? I want to know who is related to somebody. I I really want it to be Will Decker. I really, really do. Because he would be right that age. That that age in that time period. That would work. Speaking of being in the pod and doing the jump, somebody on Twitter was asking what you would have as rides for a Star Trek themed park. And I thought doing the sport drive would be cool because it'd be like a VR experience and you'd be inside and you'd travel the mycelium network and <laughs> just be shaking about as you go through the little, the what's the nerves and muscles of the universe. Yes. Mm. Yep. And then I would get out and promptly vomit. Vomit. Yes. I, I used to yeah. be able to handle those things when I was younger. I cannot now. Even with Dramamine. Remember the last time we went on Star Tours, babe? <laughs> we went on too many times no, back to back, no, that's we, for sure. There was one time, like the last time we were in Disneyland, we went on it yeah. one time and that All was right. enough. And I was just like, yeah. nope, I feel sick. Let's yep. not do that again. I have, My epilepsy acts up with stuff like that, too. Yeah. Like, I'm like, okay, can't, don't, don't want to have a seizure here. Yeah, that would be bad. <laughs> that would be bad. Do we have anything else we want to say about part one of season one because we got five weeks to wait till the rest of it but not really we're just gonna (laughs) jump in in the next Uh, episode what's your thoughts on the tardigrade i have i have my little ripper statuette sitting over there i actually love that they used a like a big tardigrade for this right i loved seeing a huge water bear that's basically their their common reference yeah then then tardigrade i loved seeing it misspelled several different times in the subtitles that was fun um but i i thought that was an interesting way to go about it yeah and to see when it's in distress and shrinks down and Mm -hmm. like calcifies and ejects all its moisture yeah just becomes that kind of pill that's That's exactly what they do that is what they do that is absolutely what they do they took all of the aspects of this microscopic organism and magnified them to something around human sized and who says there couldn't be tardigrades that size somewhere in space and who says Mm. that they couldn't travel the mycelial network i mean we don't know (laughs) i just i actually really thought that was inventive and a way to go about it that just hadn't been done before. And I think it's really cool knowing that they initially wanted to have the Tardigrade be a regular crew member. Yeah. But it was just way too expensive oh, to yeah. do that. Mm-hmm. 
constantly for every episode. It it really really. I hate be. that they stabbed him in the nipples. I know, right? Yeah. They stabbed him in the it nipples. It hurts me every time. <laughs> of course. Do tardigrades even have? We nipples? don't even know <laughs> if it was a he or a she. It could have been a she. True. Oh, it's a she, right? Isn't it Ephraim the same as Ephraim? I I don't know. I don't know if it's yeah. the same tardigrade. Because in the books, the tardigrade is Ephraim. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. But they could also be both male and female. They yeah. could, yes, and they switch. could be. I can't remember what that's called. I know what you're saying, and I can't remember the word for it. Nicholas Paul Collinson would know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he would. He would absolutely know. Yeah, I, I love the inclusion of the tardigrade. I thought it was inventive, something that had never been done before anywhere, really, in television. Uh, definitely not in Trek. And way to go. I did like it in the uh, mycelial bay, just snuffling about and yeah, playing, rolling around <laughs> yeah. like it's catnip. Yeah, basically. <laughs> and Stamos is like, I want to talk to my mushrooms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was he was jealous of the tardigrade's ability to talk to the mushrooms, to the spores. So, all right. So I think we're going to end it there because we have... So imagine if we try to cram all this into one episode of this yeah. podcast. Oh my god, it's ridiculous! <laughs> and there's there's a bazillion things we could have talked about that we just didn't have time oh, yeah. for. So, but that's yeah. okay because that's why this is a retrospective and not a deep dive into every single episode. And we may do that someday. You don't know. Yeah. We can do whatever we want because it's our show. That's true. So, final thoughts, uh, Chris. Final thoughts on this particular chunk of season one. You know, I really love. I loved binging them all together and and thinking of it as an as an as an overall arc rather than just getting it week by week and then hearing everybody's opinions mm -hmm. from week to week. I enjoyed it a lot more this way and also, you know, being a couple years older or a couple years wiser and 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 being able to look at it a little bit deeper emotionally. It's 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 a great first 9 episodes. Love the characters. It's so Star Trek to me. Yes, it's a little darker, but but it it works for me so well. I don't think it's any darker than Deep Space Nine was in its later years. Yeah, that's, that's my personal opinion. Dave, your final thoughts, darling. I enjoy the series a great deal. I like how it has a major arc for each of the lead characters and how they overlap every once in a while. How we have Michael Burnham's redemptive arc. We have Lorca's little duplicitous trying to get home arc we have stamets with his role with the mycelial network and all these things overlap and over like play with one another and of course we have ash tyler and that whole klingon arc as well it's really fascinating storytelling for something that you know is not a you know, monster of the week kind of thing but you know this ongoing uh, narrative story arc I really enjoy that kind of writing, and I think it works well for Discovery. Well, I have made no specific secret of this. Uh, Star Trek Discovery is my favorite Trek, and it took me a long time to pick a favorite because I've literally been watching Star Trek even before I knew I was watching Star Trek. So 47 years of my life, and it took me this long to finally say, nope, this is the one. Because there are things about it that just none of the other series has, have, has, have, had. Has had? <laughs> have had. Well, have had, had. And the the thing that really puts it over the top for me is representation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, Definitely. Yeah. But, uh, but there's more to it than that. It's not, that's not the one thing that... But it's it's the deciding factor stacked up against 
all of these other possible favorites. And this does not mean that I love the other series less. I love every single series of Star Trek. Every single one. Old and mm. new. Doesn't matter. They all have their own wonderful things that are specific to them, which make them wonderful. And so comparing them in that way is very, very difficult for me. But there's just something about Discovery that feels like home more than anything else, I guess, is the way to say it. Yeah, I think because Discovery is so diverse that it's more reflective of our own life and the way things really are than some of the other series. So to be projected into the future and see people more like ourselves now than what producers wanted us to be like 20 years ago. And I think for me, it is it is just such an emotionally aware series. Mm -hmm. And that's why I'm so attached to it. It's just so, it's just, it's just, it, it has a very, for a Star Trek series, which are already very emotionally intelligent, all of them, like this is, this is the top for me. This is the most emotionally intelligent and aware series of all of Trek. I have to agree with you on that. So this this is a very strong half of, well, it's a little more than half of a season as far as episodes, but it's <laughs> a very strong story that they've told and the mm -hmm. way that they've interwoven all of these stories is masterful, in my opinion. I don't know how they keep it all straight. So I guess that's mm -hmm. the difference between having a dedicated writer's room who are working together all the time to complete this arc I think that that is the best way of doing a serialized thing where there is this overarching story, where each episode leads into the next, and it's not just Alien of the Week. So I think you need to have that same team that is doing this every week so that you have that consistency. So anyway... All right, then that is the end of this particular part of the retrospective. And we will have the next part of the retrospective coming out in probably a week because <laughs> discovery is imminent, y'all. Very, very imminent. And I could not be is more excited. Not discovery is nigh. Discovery is nigh. Yeah. There might be your title. <laughs> discovery is nigh. Let me write that one down. Discovery <laughs> is nigh. No, I was hoping it would be they stabbed him in the nipples. Bell to ring each time there's a title. Stabbed him oh, yeah. in Ding. the nipples. Okay. So oh. what? I have some news. Oh, what news? So there is a new podcast, an official Star Trek podcast called The Pod Directive. That's been announced with Tani Newsom and Paul F. Tompkins. Oh, my God. Oh. Are you kidding and me? And they're going to have on special guests to talk about their love for Star Trek. Oh, my God. But, yeah, it's just barely been introduced. Oh, my God. Oh, that's cool. Well, there was... Actually, we were told that they were going to do this podcast and then everything kind of just quieted down and we never heard about it again until now. And I must have missed that announcement, but I cannot believe how excited that makes me to have Tawny Newsom and Paul F. Tompkins back together again. <sighs> this is so great. This is so great, you guys. So great. <laughs> and this is official. It's been sanctioned and everything as you'd expect it to oh, be. Oh, of course. Of course it is. Mm -hmm. Of course it is. They wouldn't dare be doing it without CBS's blessing. <laughs> So let's see, Chris. Hey, Chris. Hey, Chris. Hey. hey. Where can people find you when you are not doing this show? 
So you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at CD Littlefield. And you can follow my other shows, Open Channel, at Open Channel Trek, both on Instagram and Twitter. And there are four questions, also on Instagram and Twitter, at Four Questions Trek. And that's the number four, not spelled out. Four Questions Trek. Yes, both of which are very great shows, and I love them. Oh, thank yes, you. Yes, yes, so welcome. David Darling. Thank you. David Darling. You can follow me on Twitter at Dark Corner Cast. I am the, or one of the hosts, along with Brandy, of the Dark Corner Podcast at darkcornerpodcast.com. Uh, you could also follow my Facebook kind of fan pagey thing at DJ Evil Dave. I post links to music videos, music I'm listening to currently, and so on. So, yeah, that's me. Excellent. Uh, you can find me far too many places. Um, <laughs> okay. I, I, again, left the card with all the stuff I wrote down on the other side of the room. I don't know why I keep doing that. I think it's because I like making a fool of myself. So you can find me on a couple of live shows every week right now, which are The Unready Room, which is Friday nights at 7 p.m. Mountain. Figure it out from your own damn time zone. I'm sick of <laughs> making it easy for you guys. And uh, I do that with my friend Dan Gunther from Positively Trek, and it's on his YouTube channel, Kurt Ratz Productions. Kurt Ratz is Star Trek spelled backwards. Right now we are talking about each new episode of Lower Decks and having a grand time doing it. Then Saturdays at 12 p.m. Mountain, you can find me doing Infinite Trek with my friend Aaron Harvey, where we talk about literally whatever Trek we want. But again, right now we're covering Lower Decks, and it's great with Aaron because he's an animated series expert. And he is very good at finding Easter eggs that pertain to all Trek, but also the things that pertain to the animated series as well, the original animated series. So it's very cool. You can find that on Twitch on the channel Outpost 13. That's just the word Outpost and the number 13. Uh, I do that podcast with Dave. Also on darkcornerpodcast.com, you can find me doing Headcanon, which is a weird, weird trip through my brain and my fandoms. And it's very rambling and a lot of fun for me. And I really need to do another episode because it kind of dropped off the radar for a bit because things and stuff happened, you all. Things and stuff. I do two other podcasts. I know you thought it was done. Two other podcasts on the Hall Suite Media Network, which are the Vedic Assembly, which you can find on Vedic Assembly as Vedic Assembly on both Facebook page and on Twitter and on Instagram. And I also do Boldly Go with my friend Suzanne Williamson. We have a great time talking about Captain Christopher Pike, and we're eventually going to get to number one in Spock as well. We haven't quite gotten there yet. You should be hearing a new episode of that coming out sometime in the very near future. You can find that at Boldly Go Pod on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. And then this, if you want to find us here at uh, Twitter or Instagram or also uh, Facebook, that one place, you know, the place, it's, uh, you can find it by searching for what the future holds or WTFH pod on all of those social media platforms. <laughs> all right, then. <laughs> Just realized WTFH could mean something else. <laughs> yeah, actually, in my mind, it's yeah. what the fucking hell. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> And mine is what the fuck, honey. <laughs> that oh. too. That too. Both of those work. It <laughs> so, just dawned on me. But I, I have actually said what the fucking hell on many occasions. Mm -hmm. Let's see how many times Brandy can say fuck today. Anyway, it's a lot. Hey, it's, they do in Discovery, so. It's a lot. Yeah, Tilly says yeah. it. 
If Tilly mm-hmm. says it, I can Stannis. say it. Okay. Mm-hmm. So thank you so much, everyone, for listening. And join us next time to see what the future holds. This show is brought to you by Sweet Media. Computer, list other available Sweet Media programs. Loading Sweet Preview Program for Open Channel, a Star Trek community podcast. Google Clippy Microsoft Word. It was a little paperclip, like animated paperclip that would pop up when you were using Microsoft Word and it was like a little helper. And there are going to be more comments on it in this episode, too, so we'll get to those. Right. You kind of have to be older like us to get that. (laughs) Hey. (laughs) (laughs) No, you're right. And Nick goes on, but before he does, I want to just congratulate him on being a doctor now. Congratulations, Dr. Nick. Woohoo! Loading Holosuite Preview Program for The Janeway, a Star Trek Voyager podcast. But then again, senior officer meeting, why is Harry Kim in there? He's an ensign. Because he is the senior ops bridge person. I don't know. But that's what doesn't make sense to me. If he's like the senior ops person, does that mean everyone below him is just a crewman? He's a crewman. (laughs) Because he can't boss even Lieutenant Junior grades around. Oh my gosh. So their ops department is just a mess because it's just crewmen. Oh, it's a mess also. That explains a lot. (laughs) Actually, it does, doesn't it? About Voyager. Loading Holosuite Preview Program for Starpod Trek, a podcast exploring Gene Roddenberry's vision of the future. And remember that Gene Roddenberry wrote the novel for the motion picture. Mm -hmm. I mean, about the search for God and everything, that part of it. And there's a lot of details in that novel that didn't make it to the picture that actually opens up the scope of the Star Trek universe even more so. I mean, it's a great read. Yeah, he put, he put other stuff in it. And, but you know, but I, but Scotty being a drunk, I don't know why he, like, why wouldn't Scotty just continue to be an engineer and, you know, be a proud worker and Starfleet officer? Computer, deactivate Holosuite.